Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is self-government and the superiority of the legislative branch. We're coming to you today again from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy topics and concepts for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or who just need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm solo in the studio, but I'm happy to talk about one of my favorite policy topics, self-government and the superiority of the legislative branch. We talk all the time about the idea of self-government, how this is a unique feature of the American system and of the American experiment. But what do we mean by self-government? And in this context, of course, I'm not talking about like self-control or self-discipline. That is a form of self-government. But in this, in this context, well, we're talking about the political meaning of the idea of self-government. So let's look at the term. Uh, first of all, you see the word government, of course, and, but that's important because that means anarchy is ruled out. Uh, the founders who created our system believed in maximum individual liberty. They believed in dramatically limited government, but they did not believe in anarchy. Uh, there are folks out there, especially on the sort of extreme fringes of the libertarian movement, who would call themselves anarchists, and, and they would advocate something near anarchy. But that is not the American system. That's a different system. The American system is a system of government and not anarchy. The really interesting part of the concept, though, comes from the word self, self-government. Not government by others, but government of ourselves by ourselves. And the idea of self-government means that the rules for society are not imposed on an unwilling people, but rather that the people themselves derive the rules for society under which they have to live. So even if you disagree with the rules, so long as the people have chosen the rules, there's a sense in which you just have to sort of suck it up and deal with it, or try to persuade your fellow citizens to change their minds. So the basic idea of self-government is the idea that the rules by which we live are not imposed on us by some external force, but rather are derived by the people themselves or ourselves. Now, of course, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights put some limitations on the choices that people can make. 55% of your neighbors can't just vote to take away your religious freedom or your property rights or your freedom of speech or your Second Amendment rights. So the Constitution limits self-government in the sense that the people can't just have anything they want. It has to fit within the boundary of the Constitution. But then if you think about it, the people can change the Constitution. So there's a sense in which even the Constitution is not an absolute limit on self-government, because if a majority of the American people decided that there was something in the Constitution that needed to be trained, that needed to be changed, they have the power to do it through constitutional amendments, through a constitutional convention of the states, et cetera, et cetera. So even the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are not somehow absolute limits on the idea of self-government. But self-government obviously clearly means that the people have the primary role in some way, whether directly, indirectly, or even very indirectly, the people have some role in fashioning and choosing the rules under which 
they themselves live. Now, this is obviously not a binary thing. It's a continuum. Uh, You can have greater or lesser degrees of self-government. There's a sense in which direct democracy, where literally every question would be answered in a referendum, would be the clearest example of self-government. But on the other hand, uh, direct democracy is, is pretty impractical in most cases. And the founders purposely did not design a direct democracy because the founders were very concerned. They didn't want the rules and the policies under which we live to constantly be a swinging pendulum based on immediate public opinion. They wanted rules to change slowly. And so democracy, direct democracy in our system was eliminated. Even representative democracy only occurs in the House of Representatives. Remember, in our original founding system, the Senate was not chosen by direct election. The senators were appointed by the states. So the idea of democracy in our original founder's design was really sort of limited to one half of one branch of government, the House of Representatives. But that's still self-government. If, you, if the people are choosing their rules through representation, even a representation that is limited and designed to be slow-moving, that is still self-government. Now let's talk a little bit about this idea of how society determines the rules under which they live. And this is where the important word of consensus comes in. If there is consensus in society, then rules or policies can be established. If, if the majority of people, if there's a consensus that a, a new law should be imposed, a new limitation should be imposed, a new right should be created, a new project should be undertaken, if there's consensus in society, then you can make a rule and you can make a law. If there's not consensus, then there shouldn't be a law. Then there shouldn't be rules. So the real key idea in this idea of self-government is not simply that the people themselves determine the rules, but that the people determine those rules by consensus, not by one faction overpowering another faction, but that there be consensus. And the idea of consensus is so important that our founders designed a rather convoluted system for accomplishing that kind of consensus. Legislation generally is designed to start in the House of Representatives. It then goes to the Senate, which was procedurally designed to slow things down and to be a check on the House of Representatives. But then even if there's consensus between the House of Representatives and the Senate, you still have to have a presidential signature or at least not a presidential veto to change a policy. So the process of forming consensus in our system is purposely designed to move at about the speed of of mud, <laughs> at about the speed at about the speed of fudge. It's not supposed to happen quickly because the founders again were concerned. There's a difference between the immediate passions of the mob and consensus. They're not the same thing. So if there is a consensus among society to establish a rule or to make a change, then there should be one. If there's not a consensus, there shouldn't be one. But imposed rules are the opposite of consensus. If the people have not spoken, if Congress has not acted, if no consensus has been derived, but yet a rule or a law is still imposed on people, that's the opposite of consensus, and that's not self-government. So whether it's a king who imposes rules on the people, 
or whether it's a judge that imposes rules on the people or a court or a president. Uh, if rules and laws are being imposed, if regulations are being imposed, that's not self-government. That's, that's not governing yourself. That's being ruled. Now, this takes me to the idea of the importance and the superiority of the legislative branch, because people commonly say that we have three co-equal branches of government. But that's not really true. We have three separate branches of government, but they're not co-equal. They were not designed to be co-equal, and the founders did not view them as co-equal. In our founders' system, in our constitutional system, the legislative branch is intended and designed to be the superior branch of government. After all, in the Constitution, the legislative branch is laid out in Article 1, not Article 2 or Article 3. The founders referred to the legislative branch as the first branch of government. They never called it superior, but they referred to it as the first branch of government. And if you actually look at the design in our system, it's obvious that the legislature has been given the most power. After all, the legislature can remove a judge. The legislature legislation can create a court or disband a court. The legislature can remove a president. So the legislative powers are the superior powers in our system of three branches of government. There's a lot of talk today, especially on the center right, about the idea of the common good. There's this thing uh, that's being bandied about now called common good conservatism, which we at IPI have huge problems with. But the idea of the common good is not an alien idea. And one of the founders said, it is in the legislative branch that the people deliberate and arrive at an agreement about the common good. So the founders saw the common good as this idea of the consensus of the self-governed, and that is accomplished through the legislative branch. Now, one of the great tragedies today in our system of government in the United States is the failure of the legislative branch to do its job. Today, we do not see a functioning legislative branch, at least at the federal level. At the state level, it's really quite different. At the state level, the legislatures work really, really well. They exercise their power. They exercise their authority. But at the federal level, Congress, what we call our legislative branch, has really begun to fail to do its job. The legislatures fail to write clear laws, leaving actual policymaking to courts and to regulators. Sometimes the regulators are referred to as the unelected fourth branch of government. Today, it seems that many candidates for Congress run with no intention to actually roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of legislating, of building consensus, of compromising, but rather they use the institution of Congress to build their own brand, to build up their name recognition for some other future purpose. It's been decades since Congress has followed what's called regular order, letting committees do the work from the ground up. Too often these days, legislation is written and designed in the office of the Speaker of the House or in the office of the Majority Leader of the Senate, and then that legislation is imposed on the body, where it usually goes nowhere. So the prerogative of the legislative branch in our American system is broad and powerful, and it's intended to be that way. The legislative branch is intended to be the most powerful branch of government. It's intended to be the superior branch. 
But as things function today, too often the legislative branch is the weakest branch of government. Presidents say things like, if Congress won't act, I will. Presidents impose rules and laws and regulations on the people through executive orders, through federal mandates, whether they're constitutional or or unconstitutional. And a huge problem, one that we will devote a separate IPI Policy Basics podcast to, is the idea of judicial supremacy. Today we function as if the judicial branch is the superior branch. Congress passes laws, but we'll wait and see what the courts have to say. The president takes actions, but we'll wait to see what the courts have to say. A president issues a ruling or an executive order, and some single solitary judge on the other side of the country thinks that he or she can issue an injunction and tie the hands of the entire executive branch. So we function today with the idea of judicial supremacy, but the judicial branch was never intended to be the most powerful branch of the federal government. It was never intended to have the final say or to be able to trump the other two branches of government. As the Federalist Papers indicate, the founders discussed and intentionally did not give the judicial branch any powers of enforcement. And if you've been so unfortunate as to go to court and to get a judgment against another party, uh, you have found out that that's just the beginning of the process because just because you have uh, just because you have a judgment against another party doesn't mean you can collect because the, ju- the judicial branch cannot enforce its own rulings, and that's by design. The founders intentionally sort of tied one hand of the judicial branch behind its back to ensure that the, that the judicial branch would never become the superior branch of government. But today at the federal level, that has happened, again, because of the legislative branch failing to do its job and more than happy to see the courts take the hit of public opinion if things don't go well. As I said, there's much more we can say about the problem of judicial supremacy, and we will on another IPI Policy Basics podcast. But the courts making law in controversial areas is wrong. It's a violation of self-government. It is the imposition of rules and laws on a people who have never agreed to them who had no say or no role in the creation of those new laws and new rules. If it's controversial, just by very nature of the fact that it's highly controversial, that normally indicates that there is no consensus. And if there is no consensus, there shouldn't be a law. Now, it's very disturbing to some people, this idea that there should be large swaths of American life that are simply not governed by laws or regulations But that's sort of a backhanded definition of liberty. We should have no problem living with ambiguity. We should have no problem with the idea that people are allowed to do things that are ungoverned by laws or regulations. We should also have no problem with the ambiguity of different laws in different places, in different states, doing things different ways. That's federalism. It's the ambiguity and it's the messiness of liberty, and it's just fine. In fact, there's a famous quotation, probably my favorite quotation of Thomas Jefferson, who says, he says, I would rather live with the inconveniences of too much liberty than to live with the inconvenience of too little liberty. So there doesn't need to be a rule. There doesn't need to be a law unless there's consensus of the self-governed 
And there shouldn't be a rule, there shouldn't be a law, unless it is derived through the legislative branch. So in summary, if we consider ourselves to be a self-governing people, that should lead us to be very concerned about several things. It should lead us to be concerned at the lameness and the ineptitude that we see today from Congress, from the legislative branch, where most of the power is supposed to be centered, where self-government is actually supposed to take place, where consensus and compromise and decisions about the common good are supposed to take place. We should be troubled by the weakness and the lameness of our current legislative branch, and we should be equally concerned about the judicial branch and the executive branch trying to step in and fill those gaps, which is also inappropriate. So I hope that you have come to a better appreciation as a result of today's episode about the idea of self-government, how self-government actually happens, and that the legislative branch is where it's supposed to happen and thus is the key branch for a self-governing people. And by the way, of course, everything that I've said today on this topic also relates at the state level as well as the federal level. Well, you can find a lot more about constitutional governance and about our founders' design at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.